Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, episode 119, powered by the Apocalypse. Special episode, presented by Jason Pitt, Vincent Baker, and Miguel Baker. So, welcome. You had a fantastic presentation at Metatopia 2016, and unfortunately I believe the technical glitches ate all the audio. So... I wanted to set this up so that we could actually go through a lot of the content and discussions that were presented there, and um, go through and talk about Powered by the Apocalypse in general, and Apocalypse World in specific, uh, from a design perspective, to give people a good set of guidelines and guidance on how they can design uh, PBTA games, and when uh, it is or is not the correct tool for their designs. Um, so I want to get deep into the weeds. For people who are who may be new to this, can you just explain what Apocalypse World is? Well, uh, Apocalypse World. When I gave the presentation of Metatopia, my um, premise was, hey, you're familiar with Apocalypse World, you want to get involved in, in designing games based on Apocalypse World. And so that was my audience there. I didn't have to explain to them uh, what Apocalypse World was. And I don't usually have to explain to people what Apocalypse World is. It's it's really quite a normal role-playing game. But it does this cool thing that has made it, uh, I think, really attractive for designers. Um, and that cool thing that it does is that it uh, uh, yeah, but it it provides a toolbox for genre deconstruction mm-hmm. um, in a way that I, I think is is cool. Like it it um. It's it, it removes a lot of the barriers between your thinking about a genre of fiction and your designing a game about that genre of fiction, a game in that genre, or a game to expand or develop that genre, uh, a game inspired by mm-hmm. that genre. Um, and I think that that is the cool thing about it that designers have really seized on and really caught on to um does that answer your question yeah. at all oh yes <laughs> it does actually um on a related cool. note what were your core design goals when starting to work on apocalypse world oh now that's really uh quirky <laughs> they were very quirky um so we were I, were you there at gen con 20 2008 meg 2008 it was the year of 316 by Gregor Hutton. So I came back from Gen Con 2008 with 316 by Gregor Hutton. And my, my oh, design yeah, goals were to say, oh yeah, Gregor, check this out. <laughs> that was my design goal. I don't know. <laughs> well, also there was, you know, how do we do 
you know, one of the games, one of the premises in the game, at least the first edition, was how do I make this so that Meg likes it? Oh, yeah, but, like, that's... Uh, right, I guess for a while between uh, 2006 and 2009 or whatever, I was designing games that you hated. Kind of on purpose, and then I realized that was stupid, and why would I do that? <laughs> anyway, so my, my design goals when I started Apocalypse World were really quirky. Like, they're really... Uh, any individual game designer has weird design goals that they're pursuing. Like, I didn't, I didn't say... Uh, time to bust open something. That that came a little later. Um, another part, I think, in the design construction of Apocalypse World uh, connects to Emily Care Boss, because I had been playing games with her for a decade, and had developed some uh, technology, maybe? Techniques, at least, to... Uh, figure out, like, okay, how do we do these things? Or at least the conversation around how do we uh, get the kind of experience that we want? And what does that conversation look like in play? And what do we need to support that? Um, and I think that although, you know, some of the original design impetus of, like, oh, yeah, Gregor, I'm going to check, check this out. Or, oh, oh, we're doing this again, are we? Okay. Um, sort of thing that Vincent came back from Gen Con uh, 2008 with, met that experience of, you know, constant conversation about game play, game design, game theory. How do you make the moving parts produce the uh, effect you want? Um, where can you, you know, change them around? And that that became a really fruitful design space. Um, and then nailing it down and say, all right, how do we write this so that it conveys fully, as fully as possible, how to actually have that experience at the table? So, you know, I, there was a lot of process of the design to say, uh, like, re to remove passive voice, to say, do this thing, do this, as opposed to players, then, you know, consider picking up a die, do it, you know, so, um, I mean, there's a lot of, probably 20 years of in-house hacks of everything, like, our, everything from, like, Cyberpunk and uh, Shadowrun to Ars Magica to Pendragon to our homebrew stuff of thinking about how we structure everything we want in, in a game, in terms of game design, how does that game design support what we want at the table? And then on top of that, how do we design for it to be flexible? Um, because although we're very grounded in, you know, post-apocalypse, the things we're talking about, like Vincent mentioned, are not entirely genre dependent. Um, and we can see that in what people have done with uh, the Powered by the Apocalypse uh, engine, um, that it's not specific to any one genre necessarily. I think it lends itself to some genres better than others, but that's that might be incidental. 
I wanted to put a game in front of Gregor as an answer to 316 that I could I could hold my head high. Um, 316 was this tremendous challenge, uh, like a really exciting, um, uh, inspiring challenge of a of a game. I took it really to heart, and I I really wanted to rise to the challenge of that 316 um, prison. I don't know if anybody else has this relationship with 316. I know that some people love it and some people don't, but it really, I was like, oh, here we go, you know? That, yeah, 316 is a fascinating example. So the fundamental question it pretty much comes down to, what are the elements that caught your attention? Because I see two very distinct fictional elements uh, like design elements that might have been seeds. One of which is the heavy genre emulation nestled deep into the core of the mechanics. And the second being systems that intentionally build space for the setting to naturally emerge out of them. Uh, I'm thinking specifically with the complexity of characters in 316 as uh, they build backstory uh, with flashbacks during the uh, otherwise very setting light um, gameplay. So I didn't know what elements were the ones that really led you to step up. Oh, uh, it's one, only one very specific, which is the end game of the Um. 316 is about something and it's about something really interesting. And so I remember distinctly as I was sitting down. So, so I came back from Gen Con and I had, and I, uh, I sat down and I wrote the Brainer playbook. That's where Apocalypse World started. Um, and I remembered distinctly thinking as I was, as I was first writing the first words about the brainer, um, about the well accoutred hard hold, whatever those first words were, the creepy mind fuck. Um, I remember thinking about gasoline as a metaphor and setting out to make a game that was about something that the post-apocalypse is a metaphor or something. Um, not, not for something I'm, I'm being cagey about what it's a metaphor for. Um, that, that 316 uses this, um, Starship Troopers genre to make us talk about something, even though we're talking about it in these veiled metaphorical terms in the Starship Trooper genre terms. Um, that's what inspired me. And that's, uh, that's what I wanted to rise to. Um, and then to make that happen, I had to do the genre analysis that resulted in the game design. Right. Um, and I had to draw on those, that decade, those decades of, of, um, preform with Meg and Emily and role-playing and theory and, um, my previous work and everybody's previous work at the forge. Um, like all of that came together to support the game design, to make this, this metaphor work. 
is PBTA effectively a framework designed to tell genre or to tell the metaphor? What What is the angle in uh, that people should be thinking about? Creating genre. Yeah. yeah. Genre. I mean, it's... Yeah, it's straight up. It's straight up genre. I don't, I don't like genre emulation. It's genre analysis, um, and so what, what I had to do was I had to say, you know, I started with the brainer. Like I say, I had to say um, how, how does a brainer do right? Mm. Um, I have this this vision that's sort of this in genre vision of this character and this character's sort of visuals and the character's actions, um, and I have to say what does that contribute to uh, the genre? How does the character fit into the genre? And so it's really not looking at you know I um, the the playbooks the original playbooks were based pretty closely on Firefly, just almost by coincidence on the characters in Firefly. But I wasn't trying to do things the way Firefly did them, the way that piece of post-apocalyptic fiction did it. I wasn't emulating any particular piece of post-apocalyptic fiction. I was really trying to... uh, Well, I I was analyzing the genre to make my vision mm-hmm. work to make it accept my vision. Does, does that make, and so that's, yeah. Um, and so that's, so I don't, so I don't like to say genre, right. uh, uh, emulation. Right, right. I like to say genre analysis that it, it's a tool for bringing genre analysis or using genre analysis to design a game. Um, it's hard to say that. And then it's sort of up to the designer to have a, a vision for what that game that they make means. Right. Because otherwise, otherwise, whatever genre you turn the Apocalypse World Engine to, or whatever genre you're designing in, period, you know, what's the point of, regurg- of regurgitation? Um, it, it gets uh, stultifying, like, you know, it has to be like this because this is the way it was in the thing that I'm recreating in my game. Right. And I'm like, okay, I'm done. You know, I can go read the book or see the movie or comic or whatever. Um, in in designing a game that is it's genre analysis, I mean, it's kind of a strange thing, but I think at least as the designer and then as you know, preferably, I think, as the GM, you have something that you're hoping to say or hope to look at. Um, I think 16 is a great example because of the way it comes at it obliquely and you play through the game and then afterward you're like, huh, what, hmm, what is that? Wait, what did you just do and why? You know, it makes you think things. Because, um, you know, Sometimes it's really great to just have something goofy and do that. That's fine. Um, but a game that allows you to continue thinking and then anal- analyzing, like, why did we do what we did? 
that spills over into some of the design choices in Apocalypse World, specifically around making, um, you know, I know this is a jump, uh, around making NPCs whole people. You know, so they're not just like random disconnected actions, but that the people and the places have some kind of cohesive motivation. They're, yeah, and as a, as a designer or as the GM, there's something you're looking at there. Um, and I think that matters. Right. I also clearly see the link between uh, special moves, a.k.a. sex moves, and that principle. Like, it, it's pretty clear where that emerges. Um, so... Yep. Can you talk about some of the different approaches to system design and how PBTA works in this context? So... There, there's a certain amount of talk all, always so far um, about what is the PBTA system, and I think that that is that's not correct. Um, I think there isn't a, a PBTA system powered by the apocalypse is an approach to system design, and so like there isn't a um, character class and level system character classes and levels is an approach to system design. There isn't a point by adds and disadds system. There are a bunch of them and they're all different. And they're all, they're all quirky and unique and, and interesting. Um, but you can't say how do you, you can't say like, you can't anyway. Um, there, there isn't one system there. And I think the same is true for powered by the apocalypse. There isn't one system there. It's an approach to system design and it, uh, uh, every game has to take that approach to system design its own direction. And every game winds up with its own system. Every designer has to really do a lot of design work to make a finished game. You can't just... Because Apocalypse World is super quirky and it has all this weird stuff in it that's about my analysis of post-apocalyptic movies, mostly. Um, and it's just simply not suitable for... Uh, uh, other games like it simply doesn't align with your vision as a designer when you're creating a, a hard-bitten crime game you're going to see all this stuff in Apocalypse World that is completely off topic it's yeah. like it's out of so um, so so I'm not saying that you should I'm saying that if you're going to design a game you are going to um, take approach to to system design which is wait wait so are you saying we shouldn't be having 11 o'clock harm clocks in every pbta game uh, uh whoa why, why, yes no i'm totally we, saying yeah. that um there's a there's another slide should we skip ahead to the other slide that lists a bunch of accidents i consider them accidents of apocalypse. they happen to be the way apocalypse world works that there's no reason for it. and it's things like rolling 2d6 and adding a stat and um having a GM and, and, you know, let alone stuff like stuff like arm clocks and NPC threat types and special moves. Like none of those things are fundamental to they're fundamental to apocalypse world itself, because that's how that game works. But I wouldn't expect to look at any given powered by the apocalypse game and see any of those in them necessarily. Um, and the, there are a couple of games I really want to point to, and they are the uh, 
Bloody Hand Name of Bronze by Joshua A.C. Newman, which doesn't use 2d6 plus a stat. It uses dice pools. Um, it barely has moves. Um, but it's clearly it's clearly powered by the Apocalypse. Uh, same with um, Epidiah Ravishaw's game, Wolf Spell, um, which uh, what Epi did was he took reading a situation and reading a person and expanded them into this, this whole game about uh, essentially Viking warriors who've been transformed into wolf. And it's this brilliant piece of game design, but it, it has, you know, none of those sort of hallmarks of powered by the apocalypse games that, that the casual, the casual theorist looks for. Um, um, so yeah, no, ele- uh, harm clocks that go to 11 or whatever. No, you should, you should, Evaluate every single thing in Apocalypse World for its suitability to your game's right. needs. Every single thing. And um, use only what is actually suitable to your game. Oh, I have a funny story about that. Um, so when I wrote Apocalypse World, it was the first one. There weren't any others, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I wrote Reading a Person and Reading a Situation to work exactly the way I wanted them to work. And I'm really happy with how they work. But then, as I'm working on subsequent games, I'm like, I gotta do something different. And it, it has taken me now five years, six years, seven years? Seven Is it years. 2017? It's taken me seven years to remember that uh, reading a person and reading a situation really do work exactly the way I want them to work. And that I can just include them in other games if I want to. Um, I've been, been sort of hobbling myself looking for, uh, different ways to do exactly what I already want to do. You know what I mean? Um, so that's my funny story about that. Right. So I, when I look at Apocalypse World, I'm seeing three different levels of system design work. And I wanted to uh, gently interrogate which things fall in which camp. There's the broader PBTA framework, which is all about structuring the conversation, which I'll totally ask you to dig in on. Uh, There's the um, sort of family of design choices that people tend to misinterpret as PBTA, including character moves, playbooks, uh, 2d6 plus stat. And then there's the specific instances of Apocalypse World itself. And I'd like, it would be very interesting if you could disentangle and say which elements are in which category. Oh, yeah, that would be neat. Um, the, the trick there is that all of the elements uh the trick there is that all of the elements are in the quirky to apocalypse world category anything you can point to in apocalypse world is quirky to apocalypse world and to get at those underlying layers you have to conceptualize from the elements. Um, 
And, you know, I personally consider this to be part of the, the work of game design. And so I'm, I'm prepared to hold designers to that and to say, you know, as a designer, you really should be able to look at an element of a game and conceptualize it and see what underlies it and pursue your own interpretation of what underlies it. Um, But so, uh, you don't need a GM, you don't need dice, you don't need anything. So one of, one of the things that so far every Powered by the Apocalypse game has is some statement of uh, boy, this isn't even true. Agenda and principles, I was going to say. But even that's not true. I I really don't think there's a, a a there. I really don't think there's a um, there's a, a a core to powered by the apocalypse. Um, I really think that any two games that are both powered by the apocalypse could could have nothing in common. Um, so, so what I would expect to see as people create more and more powered by the apocalypse games, what I would expect to see is this expanding diversity of design, not uh, an orbit, not yes, a centralization. Yeah. Um, I think that it gets more diffuse with every game, and I think that's good. I think that's what should happen, and what must happen, and what inevitably will happen. Um, So you ask you ask me to unentang or disentangle. You said disentangle. What are the things that are uh, apocalypse worlds, and what are the things that are powered by the apocalypses? And uh, this is where I go. Like I'm like I don't yeah. know. It's it's electrons. They move. They move erratically. There's no. There's no. So there's a couple mechanical elements that I see happening fairly frequently in the broader category of uh, PBTA games and derived ones. The the elements that people tend to use uh, time and time again. Uh, The elements uh, I'm specifically referring to are the core resolution mechanic of 2d6 plus stat, the existence of playbooks, character moves, um, and GM never rolling. Sort of the role of the GM uh, within the context of the game. The using um, character moves as a way of setting stakes. The specific distribution of probabilities that are generally used with the 2d6 breakdown with the um, strong hit, weak hit, uh, and miss. And the very strong archetypes of the various characters. And 
those are the things that people, in my experience, people tend to clearly call core elements of a PBTA game. I totally get what you mean that it's more that um, PBTA is more of a philosophy and more of a design framework than an actual system. But there is that these are elements that are very tightly clustered and tend to be thought of as quote-unquote, the PBTA system. Um, so I'm trying to uh, gently prod to see uh, where the line is between that bucket and things like um, harm countdown clocks, stat highlights, uh, HX, things that are that seem much more idiosyncratic and tied to Apocalypse World itself, qua Apocalypse World. sort of early early iteration game. You mean where the designer has just started working yeah, on them? Yeah, where the designer has just started working on them. They're saying, hey, I have an idea. What do you think about this? I mean, there's dozens of them every month. We end up seeing lots of them. But the point is um, that there's there are there are some core ideas. Um Core mechanical bits, like you just listed, and also core sort of approaches, like we've talked about earlier. And then there's, I want to do something different. And that's where uh, the things like harm, um, special moves, uh, oh, countdown clocks, that's all the places where it's like, hey, go do something different. Um, go do something different with all of it. Like Wolfsville and um, Bloody Hand and Rosset. Also, like the uh, Alaska the Office C, which is pretty much an old school module. It's called Mini Apocalypse. Um, great game. Um, so, it's teasing apart. It's like, here's the tools you have that you can use, and then figure out how it fits your game in your genre question um and then scrap the bits that don't work i feel like one of the things is we've done this to, to, to talk to new designers to say scrap the bits that don't work it's it you just do that you're if you're like i love apocalypse world and i want to do a game and i want to use this as something else great but scrap the bits that don't work vincent wants to say anything um I have a theory, and this is kind of a crackpot theory, but it's my theory, which is that the further you get from the genre of Apocalypse World, the fewer of those things that you think of as core will apply. Mm -hmm. But most role-playing games are in the broader genre of uh, ensemble cast, action drama, um, serial fiction. Mm -hmm. Uh, with continuity, like whatever whatever attributes you want to assign to those. And so the solutions in Apocalypse World, like having a GM and like 2d6 plus the stat and like 10 plus is a strong hit and 7 to 9 is a weak hit, um, those things that you listed, um, those are going to work perfectly well for a wide range mm -hmm. of um, applications. And my crackpot theory is that that's what you're seeing more than a 
core. Yeah, yeah. Um, that it's it's useful stuff, and there's there's no there's no good reason to change it unless you have a good reason to change it. Um, and then I also don't want to don't want to go without mentioning marketing that uh, the more recognizable uh, powered by the apocalypse game is to its audience the less pushback you get on it and the the more the more your audience adopts it um and so i think there's a there's a pressure there that i like to actively resist but it's still a still a real pressure a legit and uh, those are those are things that as a designer or publisher you're definitely going to want to make decisions about and very often saying well this is how powered by the apocalypse games work this is how my audience expects it to work. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to fulfill their expectation. That's totally legit. And I'm, I'm all for that when it meets the needs of uh, your game and your, your publishing venture, you know, whatever. Um, yeah. And, and the thing I hate, the thing I have no use for is somebody who's working on a game and then somebody else says, well, that's not how powered by the apocalypse games work um, because they don't, they don't know. know. They're just making that up. They don't have any, any foundation for that. They don't have any basis to say that. Please speak to us a bit about the role of the MC in apocalypse world from a structural perspective. How did the design decisions such as not rolling dice and being provided with strict mechanical rules help shape the conversations? Um, specifically, I'm thinking of other elements of GM mechanics, such as the purposes of the agenda, the always say, the principles, and the GM moves. Um, please go forth and expand. Sure. Uh, so, Ben Lehman ran, also at Gen Con 2008, ran D&D for me. Um, basic D&D uh, Moldvay edition, like 1980, 1983, whatever year that was. Um, and it was the first time I'd played Dungeons and Dragons as an adult. One of the only times I've ever played Dungeons and Dragons. And it was super fun. And we had a great time. But one of the things I realized as I was watching Ben DM it was that he was interested to know what we were going to do, what we were going to accomplish, and what we were going to make of this adventure, right? Um, but he didn't have any, he was interested to know what we would make of it, and he didn't have any interest in swaying that. He didn't want his thumb on the scale mm. in any direction. Mm -hmm. He just wanted to know, you know, he'd, he'd created this adventure that was pretty interesting and kind of fun. Like, it, it was, you know, it, it had some good questions in it. Could we defeat this thing? And he didn't know the answer if we could defeat that thing. And what would we decide to do about this other thing? And he didn't know the answer. Um, and so then during play, he could just, you know, like I say, not put his thumb anywhere on the scale. He could, he could play as as a, almost as a, an observer, almost as a referee, but he was an engaged audience. He was really excited. He was curious. He was, he was really curious to know what we would do and what we would accomplish and what we would decide. And so that, uh, 
what that did is it eliminated all of the potential conflicts of interest. He could perfectly easily set target numbers based on his neutral judgment of the situation because to sway anything one way or the other uh, would make it a pointless exercise. He would no longer be able to simply be curious about what we would do because then he would have pushed it one way or the other. And he, he didn't want to, he, he was curious. And so um, that was the role for the, the GM that I wanted and needed for apocalypse world was as, as the MC uh, maybe you can put your thumb on the scale in a variety of ways, but you wouldn't want to because you're honestly curious about what's going to happen and what the player characters are going to do, what the players are going to decide, um, what the characters are going to do, what they're going to be able to do, what they're going to want to do, but fall short. Like all of these are really interesting. Like you're, yeah, you play to find out. And so all of those systems are there to allow, well, so in, in the jam chapter, the MC chapter in Apocalypse World, some of that is orientation and some of it is support and some of it is, is structure. And so I want you to be sure to understand that. Like if you're, when it says, look at NPCs through crosshairs, part of that is an instruction to you, but much of it is just this, this sort of warning that says, these rules will kill your NPCs. They really, really will. You, if a if a player character decides to kill an NPC, there is really nothing you can do about it. By the rules. Um, and so there's this element of just orientation that says this is what you should expect the rest of the rules, the player facing rules, to do to to your ideas. Um, and then the other half of it is structuring your ideas so that you're you're making fun, interesting, useful decisions. But the the whole point is to allow you to put you in this mindset where you're curious to know what will happen and you don't want to sway it one way or the other. And so you can just say whatever you think is interesting. You can ask any question you want to know the answer to. Um, and you can play very freely within these wide bounds of um, playing to find out what will happen. So that's why the MC in Apocalypse World works that way. Fantastic. Thank you very much. So, a follow-up question, uh, specifically for Apocalypse World, is could you please speak to threats and how scarcities were used in first edition, how the new threats map is designed, and how those elements tie into the fiction? So, where it, uh, it's clearly the... Um, way that um, Apocalypse World 1 from 2 has evolved. So I'd love to hear more about it. That was pure logistics. Um, the fundamental scarcities in first edition, I was just losing people. It's kind of an abstract way to think about threats, and I tend to think about things like that in that kind of abstract way. Um, but people weren't using it it wasn't clear how to go from your first session worksheet, which was very much like the current threat map. Wasn't clear how to go from that for many people. Wasn't clear how to go from that to writing up threats uh, with fronts that didn't, they didn't correlate to that, right? They, uh, 
you know, you had this, this, the first session worksheet, which was essentially the threat map, I think. Um, but then you were supposed to do something to make that into fronts. And it was always perfectly easy for me. And it was, it was perfectly easy for a lot of players, but I was losing some number of players. And, um, I really wanted for second edition, like you'll notice that a majority, maybe even a huge majority of the changes in the second edition are just to streamline uh, procedures. You know, history uh, is the shining example of that, um, that probably knocked 70% of history uh, time. Anyway, whatever. So, so that was purely, purely to streamline that process. Um, I figure that the people who still want to think about fundamental scarcities and to think about um, uh, sort of abstruse relationships between their threats will still be able to do that if they want to. Um, and the people who were struggling to do that can don't need to. Like, there's no there's no reason to unless it's unless it's bringing something for you to the game. Um, but so the threat map is just a million times easier. A million times easier <laughs> for some number of players. So, my follow-up question. Less on the GM and more on the player. Um, so, could you please speak to player moves, character moves, and the specific way that those moves interact with the conversation? Um, and while we're at it, um, you know, how it fits into issues like... Uh, uh, stake setting and uh, ideas such as how to design a good move and where the different um, decision points are with regards to move design. Uh, it's a fascinating um, example of sort of half-baked stakes, and I'd love to hear more. This is this is a little more crack pottery. This is a little more crack pottery. Um, uh, I have a, another crackpot theory. I have a theory <laughs> that... Ready to go ahead? So this is, this is in retrospect. This is from me looking back at how the moves have worked over the years and how other games do things and uh, other Powered by the Apocalypse games do things. And so this is... A, this is kind of questionable, this piece of analysis I'm about to give you. Um, I think that what the moves do is that they make the conversation into a good conversation, as in they turn the conversation into jokes, into um, gossip, into no shit there I was kinds of stories. They create suspense in the conversation, um, they mimic the kinds of conversations you have when somebody is telling you something that you're really interested in. And so you're asking the right questions and you're interrupting like in the right moments and not in the wrong moments. And I think that that's the way moves work. Um, as I was designing them, what I was thinking about, I was always thinking about who turns to whom and what do they ask. Um, 
And so that's the way they're all designed is, is just with this very procedural sort of very simple structural question of who turns to whom and what do they ask? Mm -hmm. Um, very rarely you turn to somebody and tell them something, but usually you turn to somebody and ask them something. And so that's how I designed them was just, you know, when you point a gun at somebody, who do you turn to and what do you ask? Um, but I think that how they ultimately work is by making those conversations into exciting, fun conversations, making them mimic the exciting, fun conversations you have in, in, your daily life with people you like on topics that you're excited about. All right. Uh, so I know there's a number of ways you can design moves specifically, and I'd love to hear more about them. Like the pick lists uh, where you're trying to pick po uh, which positive things you get, pick lists where you pick which bad things you're going to pick next, uh, ones where you're selecting... Um, which of the potential outcomes you would like to just choose to get. Um, there, like, there's a lot of interesting space, uh, just plain permission uh, to proceed with X, Y, or Z. Um, this move allows you to fly. You can fly. So, like, I'd like to ha ask how you decide on which approach is best for each uh, fictional situation and for each game, how do you decide um, uh, what you're um, deciding on when you listen to what a ghost is trying to tell you, for instance? Uh, I mean, that's, that is the question. Yeah. On that slideshow, there are these three example moves of when you listen to a ghost, roll plus sensitive, this is for a... a reality TV ghost hunters kind of genre game. When you listen to a ghost, roll plus sensitive, and then there are these three moves about different ways that that conversation could work, and which one do you choose? And I think the three examples are all like the... One of them is more dangerous than the others. One of them gives the GM a lot more... Uh, opportunity to inject information than the others. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, one of them puts the player more in control of the ghost. And one of them puts the, uh, one of them, one of them really sort of alienates the player from the ghost. One of them only allows you to ask the ghost these very specific questions. You can't have a conversation with a ghost. All you can do is, is find out, you know, these little discrete pieces of information. What letter does your name start with? Um, what were you doing when you died? That kind of stuff. Uh, and so those are the kinds of decisions I'm making when I'm designing moves and when I'm choosing moves, when I'm sort of narrowing my selection of moves, is in this, in this moment... Who is in control? What are they in control of? Who is out of control? What are they out of control of? Who... What does the game offer and what does the game withhold? Mm. What does the game threaten? Um, where are you secure and where are you insecure? Where are you vulnerable? I think a lot of it is also about scope. That's what you were just 
with the gross well, question. Yeah, it's I like mean, one of them is how. That's one of the things you yeah, consider. Yeah. Yeah, like, you know, where where do you have, where are you inviting as a designer of a move? Like, where are you inviting your players to fill in the blanks, mm-hmm. and uh, what spaces are you leaving open for yourself or uh, as a as a potential GM? Or what spaces are you leaving open for the players to investigate further in the future? I mean, if you're looking for this move to give nailed down information, that's a very different decision than if you're looking for this move to elicit new information from the player that none of you knew before. Um, One of the things you have to weigh is how much... uh, So one one of those ghost moves allows you to ask the GM, what does the ghost tell me? Um, And I wouldn't choose to use that move unless I was confident that the GM would have an answer, right? That the GM has thought about it or can answer by gut or that the GM is properly set up to... um, Exactly. So that that doesn't put the GM in an uncomfortable spot of like, I don't know what this ghost tells me. You... I haven't, I haven't, you know, you know what I'm saying. So I don't think there's, you know, an answer. If I were designing that ghost game, I would choose one or, or another move that I haven't thought of yet. Um, But until there's a whole game there, until I know the particulars of how that move fits into the game, um, I couldn't choose. And very often with Apocalypse World, we went through many iterations of some of the moves, yeah. like acting under fire. Uh, there were probably a dozen yeah. uh, different versions of acting under fire where um, reading a person and reading a situation were exactly the way they were from the beginning. I think, I think the questions in reading a situation changed the questions in reading a person didn't. Um, and so one of the things you have to do as a designer, I think, is you have to be able to, well, mm-hmm. I'm going to say you have to be able to, you have to be able to hold both the particular piece of the design that you're working on, the move that you're working on, um, hold both that and the whole game in your head at once. But you don't really have to do that. You have to be able to go back and forth and you have to treat nothing as as sacred. You have to, you have to be able, be prepared to revise anything yeah, I mean, to finish think, a game. Yeah. Revising, it's easy, I think, sometimes to have a move that you design and you're like, okay, cool, that move is done. But then you have to back out and say, does this fit with, whether it's a, if it's a character move, does it fit with this character? How does it uh, act as a gear with the other moving pieces in that character playbook? And then you have to also consider like the other moving parts in the game to see how it works. And I think oftentimes with, uh, with a move, there's, it's a calibration question. You know, is this hitting hard enough? Are these questions that are strong enough? Are they, are they getting to something interesting to me as a player, to me as a GM, to me as a designer, or are they just sort of like, you know, kind of, eh, okay, it's kind of cool. You know, because if you're doing something, it should have weight. It, to make a move that doesn't have weight behind it, 
or consequence behind it um, is is really kind of filling up space. And either I think it should fold into it would naturally fold into a different move, or it could be accommodated somewhere else in the in the game. Because um, if it doesn't have weight and consequence, you're not it's not, it, you're not doing anything there. Thank you. Uh, could you please expand and explain a bit on the underlying structure of Apocalypse World and the systems associated with it? So how the conversation works and how um, play moves towards the conversation. So um, I think of Apocalypse World as having, let's say, six systems Mm -hmm. and there's this is one of the slides i don't i don't know if it's exactly six but it has like the moves and it has the threats and it has the um uh, now i can't even remember them the i'll pull the slide up here that'll work um but so what happens with those systems is that they pass off between one another um so we're talking and then you make a move and the move might implicate the harm rules. And so we go to the harm rules and the harm rules might uh, implicate your playbook because maybe you have to, um, maybe you're playing the angel. And so when, when you heal somebody, you uh, mark experience or whatever. And so all of the subsystems trade off almost randomly. I mean, none of it is random, but they, they trade off really, uh, you think that's a trajectory is what you said. Well, it's like ping pong. Um, they, the, the subsystems all trade off constantly with one another. Um, and they do it over this, this is the slide. They do it over, over different time frames where, um, uh, like rolling a stat might mean you mark experience and you might mark five experience during the session. So at the end of the session, you get the advance or whatever, or it might take six sessions to get an advance. Um, the, the playbooks change more slowly that like the moves operate on this time frame, and the playbooks operate over a longer time frame. Um, one of the, one of the design principles, and I learned this from Epidiah Ravishai years ago was to give, um, to give fictional causes real effects, meaning that if my character punches you, uh, my character punches yours, that's the fictional cause, and it has a real effect, which is that you change a number on your character sheet, right? Um, and But real causes, like you changing a number on your character sheet, has fictional effects. And so there's never a cascade of only real... Like, it's fine if there's a cascade of only fictional causes and effects, I don't mind that, but every time you go to the character sheets, the playbooks or the dice or um, a, a conversation about procedure or a real, um, uh, a real, a system that exists in the real world, not in the fictional world. Mm-hmm. Um, every time you go to those, it takes you back to the fiction. The, the effect of that is back in the fiction. Um, and then all of those systems have different relationships um, I'm moving my hands in this in this <laughs> ambiguous gesture where um, sometimes it's as simple as when you roll plus cool, you mark experience. But sometimes it's like um, when you seduce and manipulate somebody and you decide to use the stick. And so they have to erase one of their highlighted stats. 
So there's the it blocks this other subsystem right. instead of it simply invoking the subsystem. And so the different subsystems invoke each other and block each other and subvert each other and contradict each other and and baffle each other and redirect each other and put each other to different uses all of the time. Um, and then crucially for Apocalypse World, uh, and I think, well, anyway, crucially for Apocalypse World, um, consequences build and they cascade. And this is the famous snowball um, that when you start play, you're in one situation. And when you end play, everything has catastrophized right like there's no um every everything everything, everything might have changed um yeah. yeah um there's nothing worse than a well anyway nothing worse than a balanced game even go <laughs> right go is most the most famously balanced game there is but even go is simply a catastrophe for one player or the other you know once once you start the game in motion there's no such thing as game balance anymore there is a falling out of of catastrophe. Um, and that's something that I think role-playing game designers in particular struggle with is, Absolutely. is they, they, we, we try to create balanced games and trying instead of trying to create unbalanced games, and I think, interestingly unbalanced we, games. We, we as creatures, as human beings, we crave stability. You know, we want balance. And I watch this over and over, you know, different groups where you give them this beautifully unbalanced situation and they're like, okay, balance it, balance it, balance it, like, what? now what? Okay, we're stable, we've got it good, we're, we're set. And then you have to find a way to unbalance it again if you want to keep playing because um, it's just more interesting once you've reached a stasis great, you're comfortable. Um, but if you keep poking at that stasis, then you keep getting interesting and uh, dynamic play. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why one of the last advances is to reti retire your character to right. safety. Because yeah. now you, you've you're saying, you've okay. earned essentially that stasis. Yeah. And so then you can stop playing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. One of the stasis. I'm done. I'm set. Yeah. And uh, that's it's so fascinating as a designer to design into that space of uh, chaos, of um, uh, situation tipping out of control. And then how, you know, imagine like a, a tilt board where you have a, a ball in the center and then all around and you just, you, you have to keep tilting that board uh, to keep it interesting. And if any, if, if you ever wind up where like, okay, we're perfectly balanced, to recognize that that perfectly balanced point is a moment and any little shift is going to throw it off. That's cool. Um, boy, people don't like that. Players don't like that. Uh, I don't think designers like that to recognize that your per like your perfectly balanced game means that, you know, it's inherently at a moment of impending chaos. Um, yeah, and a lot of games are built not like a balance board, but like a bowl, and the marble sits at the bottom. And right. any 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 effort you put into it, the marble moving, okay. doesn't. Like you can lift the marble up to the side, and then it rolls back down to the bottom. Right. And I think that that's something that role playing game designers struggle with. Um, and I think that Apocalypse World offers a model 
or to be a plate resting on a marble instead of a marble resting in a <laughs> right. bowl. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you very much. So a bit of a follow-up question would be so where does consent and power fit into the PBTA framework? So um, this goes back to what I was saying about the the ghost moves. That when you're so um, this goes back to what I was saying about the about the ghost moves, mm-hmm. where the the way you design your moves has serious, like tiny, tiny changes in the way a game design, uh, in the way a move is designed. Um, tiny changes in the way a move is designed make a big difference to how the move organizes power and authority and consent and uh, decision-making and negotiation Mm -hmm. at the table. And the examples here are for um, related moves from different games. These are all, these are all combat moves Um, and you can look at them. I hope we have this, these slides available. Um, But the point is, that in the game you're designing, the immediate details of how the move works will determine things like when you're losing a fight, do does the game punish you for losing the fight or does the game reward you for losing a fight? And that has implications in things like how willing are you to go into a fight? How, how dangerous is a fight? Not for your character, but for you as a player. Um, when you're losing a fight... Is that fun and exciting or is that demoralizing or is it right. frightening? Um, Who gets to describe how you lose a fight? I mean, one of one of my primary um, influences in this is um, uh, Mike, which is playing with kids and bad things happen to your character, but you get to say how they go terribly wrong. And that's super fun. So having the question of of consent i think also brings in questions of engagement mm-hmm. and where do you as a player uh more fully engage or invest in what your character is doing and if it's exciting to lose oh man you're going to drive toward that but if if losing feels like uh you're you lose um you know, you're powerless, you, yeah. you lose agency, you get your stuff taken away, then it's just going to suck. And yeah. you're going to, if you, if the game design is such that you know that going in, then you can drive for that too. Like this game is going to grind my character into paste and bring on the grinding. If you have that buy-in at the beginning, you can, you can invest in that more, but uh, that's all part of the, the, sort of real world and game world, like, like you were talking about before, with what, how the fiction feeds into the real and the real feeds into the fiction, that loop of power and decision and consent. If a game is, if the game design is forthright uh, with here's what this is about, here are how the moves work, here are how, this is how combat is dealt with in this game, then you're good. Well, Yes. I mean, if if a game is forthright, then players should play it and play it informedly. Yeah. Um, 
but the thing I want to get at with this is that is that when you're designing your game, decide on purpose who you're taking power away from and who you're giving power to. Yes. Um, and small changes in the design of the move can really take power away from somebody or give power to someone. Totally. And you need to decide and make very intentional decisions about what kinds of circumstances you will give the players what kinds of powerlessness. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I'm, I'm fundamentally a horror game designer. And that means I, my instincts are to design pretty unpleasant games. <laughs> and so I'm constantly, as a designer, I'm trying to draw the player along through this kind of unpleasant experience, this horror experience. Um, and so I need to be very careful with when the horror dominates and when the player's engagement dominates mm -hmm. and um, constructing your moves is a crucial piece of that design process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, as well as being a piece of genre analysis. Like I can say that in Mad Max, this is how violence goes down and right. versus how violence goes down in Spartacus or how violence goes down in, um, Boardwalk Empire, right? Um, but more important than that is how the players relate to the violence, or how mm -hmm. the players relate to whatever it is the 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 elements. Um, and the example that I I've been giving for years is for a little while the fashion was to design social interactions as though they were combat. Mm -hmm. Like I would make an attack with my charm skill and you would have a certain number of social hit points. And once I had reduced your social hit points enough using my charm skill, um, then we were friends. And uh, I don't, it's, <laughs> it seems silly. it's kind of bad. It's, it's actually kind of bad. Yeah. And you know, in harmless situations, it's kind of bad and harmless. And in, really more more charged situations uh it, it can get kind of rapey and i'm yeah, not into it, it you know it's more and more messed up and, abusive. and so so um designing rules so that the procedures of play fit the subject the yes. content of play and then furthermore so that you're making intentional and humane decisions about who has power and who doesn't mm -hmm. in the, in, in every tiny little interaction. Mm -hmm. um, and then also so that it supports the, I mean, you zoom out a little bit also so that it supports sort of what conversation you want to be having as a game designer in, in that game. Because one of the things I see sometimes is people using powered by the apocalypse without you know, breaking it apart and looking at its pieces is, you know, they're doing this other game thing and then they haven't done this level of analysis of how do I structure the moves so that I'm giving my players the uh, authority and engagement and you know, ability to contribute um, where and when I want. And, some, and, you know, it can break right down yeah. because, they are designing toward one thing, but their moves are incenting something entirely different. Oh, yeah. 
uh, and that happens over and over. So that's why you know, examining how you're designing your moves matters to how your gameplay is. And it's important to think about. And it's important to be willing to, you know, scrap things that aren't working. And I think that's, uh, you know, just yeah. a, a baseline. If it ain't working, change it. <laughs> Fantastic. So, one more question. How can and should people publish with PBTA, including uh, things like using your rule system, your words, etc.? Okay. Oh, on publication, um, very, very quickly. Uh, my policy on publication is basically that copyright law is the relevant law yeah. Yeah. and that if you obey copyright law, you're fine. And my understanding of that is that if you use my words or my images, our words or our images, if um, so my understanding of that is that if you use our words or our images, um, you need our permission. And if you're using your own words, you don't need our permission. Um, my moral take is that if you're doing something that's inspired by our work, it's appropriate to say so. Um, it's appropriate to mention this in the credits. And I'm, and I'm totally satisfied uh, with a note that says, Part of this game was inspired by Apocalypse World by Megan Vincent Baker. You know, that's mm -hmm. that's all that's really required, as far as I'm concerned, to meet the moral uh, requirements of being a good a good designer publisher. Um, the little Powered by the Apocalypse logo, mm -hmm. I own that, and so you can't use it without my permission. Um, I basically always grant permission, but. Yes. Uh, you have to ask, you know, like legally, you have to ask. And I grant permission um, only only for games that are about to go, uh, about to be published. Like wait until your game is finished. I, I don't like to put that logo on drafts. Um, that should go on final games. Um, <clears throat> but otherwise, if you're using, like you, oh, and so if you're using sections of Apocalypse World, apocalypse world text like if you're using the moves um you need our permission mm -hmm. um i really like the way avery did it in yeah. monster hearts it's a really great use of use of apocalypse world's text and i would i would give anybody who wanted to do that i would give anybody permission to do that who wanted to um but if you if you are designing a game for an audience publish it put it in front of that audience you know, one of the things is that the barriers to publishing have fallen away drastically in the last 25 years that we've been involved in publishing. You know, figure it out, write it up in a good PDF, put it out there. Um, I think, that, you know, the question of how you design and publish with PBTA, um, think hard about if it's a good fit. You know, oh, yeah. PBTA is not always the best choice for your game. Um, if it is, great. If it's not, go find something else. Yeah. Just because there's a because it works for a lot of games and a lot of people um, doesn't mean it's a good fit. There are people who really don't grok how it works. There are people who don't like how it works. Fine, go do something else. Yeah, um, so the question of uh, how you design, my my 
recommendation for that first is to read other PBTA games, play other PBTA games, see if they're hand and not just like I'm going to play, you know, these like Apocalypse World and, you know, it's two closest right. like similar ones, but like play play Threadbare and Monster Hearts and um, Wolf Spell, Wolf's, Wolf Spell. Wolf Spell and um, Blades in the Dark or whatever, you know, yeah. uh, to give uh, a, to give yourself a sense or at least read them um, to give yourself a, a sense of whether that is the right uh, framework, the right toolbox to pull from. And then you're not just pulling from Apocalypse World. If you're looking at all like a whole bunch of different PBTA games and you look at the spread from, you know, PBTA and Dungeon World, or from Apocalypse World and Dungeon World and um, uh, Nano World and um, I don't know, something like what's something that's, that's, you know, something else that's barely recognizable, murderous. like Murderous Ghosts. Yeah. Um, you'll start to see how flexible it is and whether it's a good fit. Um, and once you've figured out what is a good fit for your game design, um, hopefully that'll also give you uh, the permission and the freedom to figure out where you want to design your game um, and, yeah. and recognize that it's not, it doesn't have to look like anything. And it's totally cool if you look at all the PBA t- stuff and say, I'm going to do this differently because, oh, that's exciting. You know, ooh, really cool with that. Um, and then, you know, there's several different places to talk about, uh, your design or work on your design, get information and feedback, you know, Barforth Apocalypse, Apocalyptica blog and the Powered by the Apocalypse form on G plus and, you know, podcasts like this one and all kinds of other places. Um, so that can do, that's, that's what you can do and how you get started, how you get started. Well, so. I want to say a thing about how you All get right, started. How you get started with game design is you take something you like and you hack it to make what you love. You're like, oh, this could almost do this. Great, do it. You've started. Congratulations. Um, that's how you start. Um, I think that playing games, imagine, imagining a scenario that you are in with some friends and then thinking about what would we do if we were in that scenario. I think that's intrinsic to human beings, maybe not even only, maybe intrinsic to mammals. I don't know. Um, And I think that for a long time, there was a barrier of like, oh, I have to, it has to look like this. It has to be this. But you start by saying, what if we were, you know, what if we were airship pirates and uh, we had discovered that the sky ended. What do we do now? How cool is that? So, um, yeah, just just start. There are no limits. But you wanted to say something else. Um, no, that's <laughs> what I wanted to say. Okay, great. <laughs> I wanted to say that uh, I'm delighted if you use Apocalypse World or Powered by the Apocalypse to create a first draft of your game the Mm. object is to get something to the table as quickly as you can because game design is an iterative process you play and design and play and design and play and design and play and design and to get that first playable thing to the table like apocalypse world can really get you there quickly 
And then you can do the hard work. Well, first of all, then you can find out whether uh, apocalypse or whether powered by the apocalypse is how you actually want to do it. And like, I have a couple of friends who did exactly that started with apocalypse world or, and discovered after their first play tests that it was not doing what they wanted to and are now completely uh, they're designing something else in a different direction. And that's fantastic. I consider that to be, well, I consider it to be as big a success Mm -hmm. as um, seeing a game through to a powered by the apocalypse finish, because um, I think every game should exist. Every game that (laughs) every game that you want to make should exist. And it's your vision this is my pep talk. It's your vision <laughs> that makes your game good. It's not whether it's powered by the apocalypse or not. It's your own unique insights into role playing and into your subject matter that that make your game worth existing. And I would love to see every single game. Fantastic. Well, I know that people are going to really enjoy this interview, and I wanted to thank you very much, both of you, for. Uh, joining me on this little impromptu podcast interview and talking about Apocalypse World in all the nitty-gritty. Thanks for having us on. This was fun, and um, we should do more sometime. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. And um, please, everybody out there, feel free to send us any questions you have. We love to answer questions, yeah. and we will we will get back to us. You can or get back to you. You can you can find us, and we will get back to you. You can find us both on G Plus and also at um, is it what's the anyway or do you want to what other ones? Yeah, lumpley.com. So cool. Oh, and back our patrons. Oh, and back our patrons. We do that. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, see you later. And there we have it. That was a fantastic interview. And despite a few technical glitches on our re-recording, I think it does a really good job of discussing sort of the philosophical background behind Apocalypse World and some positive directions that we can take uh, for designing our own games. Until next time, good luck with your designs.